You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Richard Haas, President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations, and I'm delighted to be here today with you, but also with my friend David Ignatius, who's, I believe, known to everyone as an author and a columnist, to talk to him about his latest work of fiction. The title is The Tao of Deception, which you can find in the pages of a newspaper called The Washington Post. As they used to say, (laughs) if you don't get it, you don't get it. David, welcome. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be on the other end of the microphone, so to speak. Yes, it's also great that it's not oh dark thirty when you and I usually meet uh, on the set of a certain uh, uh, show. So, David, let me start with the question that everybody, I'm sure, is asking himself when they hear about your latest. At what point does a short story become a novella, and at what point does a novella become a novel? What uh, what actually is a novella? So, uh, in my book, a, a novella is 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 a short novel. It, it's uh, like a novel in that I wanted this to have an arc. I wanted you to see the characters unfold over time, the, the story have a beginning, middle, and end. In this, in this case, it takes place over 30 years. So it's not a short story. A short story to me is just a, a fragment that's carefully observed. Um, a, a novel, obviously, is a much broader canvas. Um, th- this tries to tell a, a big story in, in a limited number of words. It's, it's under 25,000. Um, but I have to say that whatever you call it, uh, it ended up being a lot of fun for the author. I've never tried anything quite like this. I owe enormous uh, thanks to my editor, David Shipley, the editor of the opinion section, who co-conspired with me and edited, edited this really, really brilliantly. So it was a fu- fun project. I hope people enjoy reading it. I certainly did. I really did enjoy it. One other uh, technical writer's question. Did you set out to write a novella or did it become a novella en route? Just talk a little bit about the process. I had a conversation with David Shipley, my editor, some months ago, and we got this idea that why not try serialized fiction? David said, you're a spy novelist, you're a columnist. Why don't you pull the two together and, and let's try something different? And we reminded ourselves that once upon a time, it was very common uh, in magazines, less so in newspapers, but, you know, the t- time of Charles Dickens, famously, all of his novels were serialized. They'd come out, he actually wrote them on deadline uh, to, to, to meet each each uh, issue's publication d- date. That that fell away. It was something that I don't think any newspaper has, has done or even considered. So we thought, uh, let's let's give it a try. I then thought, what is a story that I could tell in, in the constrained space that we have, 20 to 25,000 words. And I, there'd been a puzzle that I had wondered about for some years involving the, the uh, takedown, the destruction of the CIA's network of informants and agents in China that began around 2010, lasted a couple of years, and just devastated what the CIA had operating in China at the time. I'd seen some journalistic accounts in the New York Times and elsewhere. I'd written some columns about it, but I'd never really felt I understood it. And it it occurred to me that this is the kind of story where you're not going to get at all the facts, but you could imagine and weave and let your imagination play uh, and and tell a story that would be fun. But so that, that's how it began. Basically, with the the idea, 
let's do something like this. And then this seemed to fit. When it became clear that the uh, American spy network in China was being rolled up, uh, did you write about that as a journalist? Was this something that you've been noodling for almost 15 years now? I wrote about it some years af after it after it happened and made reference to it in columns about the Chinese intelligence service. It, it was it was something that was uh, written about in the, in, the, in the New York Times, as I say, in Foreign Policy magazine. It was mysterious. Um, people in the end believed that the problem had been a Chinese mole inside the CIA. I mean, who else? How could a network have been ripped apart like that unless you had somebody at the very top, somebody like Kim Philby famously in England, who disclosed the identities of these agents? It turned out, and that's, that's one of the hinges on which my little story turns in, in the Tower of Deception, that it was much, much more complicated than that. Yes, there was a mole. There was somebody at a, at a fairly senior level in Beijing who knew some of these secrets. But the reason the Chinese were able to be so successful was something different. It involved their ability to analyze mistakes in, in CIA operations, the protocols that were repeated too often, uh, communications links that were not as secure as people thought. So I don't want to give away the story. I want you to read it and find out uh, what people thought and then what they realized was the truth. But, but that was the kind of tr uh, true background you can find in, in journalistic accounts um, the, that are out there. No, that, that very much comes through. Uh, so I have to be sensitive here not to spoil things for those who haven't had the, uh, the treat of- uh, No spoilers, of, please. Uh, no, but then there's also some wonderful characters. You've got you know, at least four really wonderful characters in this. Uh, the couple that's central, the Chinese figure, and the- uh, the early person who uh, changes changes sides, shall we say? So four compelling characters into uh, twenty twenty five thousand words is a great ratio of uh, of, uh, of 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 writing. So uh, well done. Let, let me just say let me just say a word about 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 each of those characters because you're right. This the story does turn on them. This short novel opens with a character named Yu Qiangsheng, who was the number two person in the Chinese intelligence service called the Ministry of State Security. He defected, in fact, to the United States in November 1985. It was initially hushed up, but it was an enormously important defection. This guy knew all of China's secrets, and it was devastating for the Ministry of State Security. He, in my novel, uh, right in the opening scene, meets a young CIA officer named Tom Crane, who's a fluent Chinese speaker, who's kind of assigned to him as a babysitter to listen to him, listen to his stories. Defectors are always kind of cranky, and this one is. And so Tom Crane spends a lot of time with him, hearing and understanding what it is the Chinese intelligence service has been trying to do. His wife is also a fluent Chinese speaker. She's a Mozambican uh, Chinese uh, of mixed ancestry, grew up in Macau, interesting, complicated character. So the two of them propel the story forward. And then finally, there's a woman who rises in the Ministry of State Security in, in the aftermath of this devastating defection by Yu Kangsheng, who I call Ma Wei. She's very much a fictional character, but she embodies the, the new dynamism and, and, and success 
of the of the Chinese service, our viewers have to realize the Chinese really have been eating our lunch. They are incredibly uh, uh, active in, in 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 their operations. The uh, FBI officials said a couple of years ago that they opened two investigations of Chinese intelligence activities every day. Imagine that to a day. So uh, Ma Wei kind of embodies that very aggressive, intense uh, spirit. Those are my four characters, and we won't tell uh, our viewers exactly what happens to them. Mum is the word. Uh, one of the interesting things that Ma Wei said, though, was her critique of American intelligence, that somewhere, somewhere along the way, if you think about the OSS and the early years of American intelligence that you've written about, and you, you write about more recent American intelligence, almost like many other institutions. It's a, it's a story of a increasing the book, more looking to avoid uh, mistakes than to take risks, perhaps worried about congressional investigations. Say something about that, about the, almost the different trajectories of China's intelligence becoming, in some ways, more like old American intelligence and American intelligence in some ways becoming slightly more what we'd expect from a status system. So I think you put it well, Richard. Uh, Chinese intelligence in recent years has acted as, as if it had the wind at its back. It's a, it's a growing, confident, risk-taking, dynamic country. It thinks it's fated really to, to be dominant in the world in the way that the CIA and the United States used to feel in, in the 1950s and 60s. I think about my own novels. I've, I've written with this now 12, I have a 13th that will be published uh, in, in the spring. But, but over the, the years that I've been writing about the CIA, the first novel is set in the 70s and 80s, there really has been a change. There, there was a kind of swashbuckling, often dangerous, let's, let's be honest, sometimes arrogant and out of control CIA that basically felt it had license to run the world after scandals, congressional investigations, lawyers, all the things that we know about, the CIA has become more risk averse. It's, it's, it's more cautious. It, it tries to, to, you know, operate color within the lines, so to speak. Uh, generally speaking, I think as Americans, we'd say that that's, that's a good thing, but it does lead to some, um, uh, less aggressive, less dynamic uh, op operational uh, approach. The, the Chinese have been, have been going in the other direction. They're just trying to trying to steal everything in sight. They've been been really quite successful. When you look at the growth of their defense, aerospace business, awful lot of the stuff they just ripped off from the United States and other countries around the world because of aggressive intelligence operations. So, yeah, the two lines kind of crossed. Um, again, I, I I don't want uh, the, an American intelligence service that that isn't faithful to our democracy. I think some of the problems the CIA ended up encountering from the the, the old swashbuckling days it was that it just wasn't faithful to our American democracy. It acted more like a British intelligence service, different society, you know, more upper class and elite, more disdainful of the rules, less like an American democratic intelligence service. Finally, got really crushed for that reason. Let's not make that mistake again. But um, I, I think it is in, in the intelligence business, the name of the game is stealing other people's secrets. You're there to break, break the rules of other countries, break their laws, uh, not to observe them. So that raises a couple of questions for me, which is if you were to take a step back 
In the period you're writing about, the U.S.-Chinese relationship has deteriorated markedly. Uh, you know, we came out of the, you know, the last two decades of the Cold War. We cooperated against the Soviet Union. The first decade or so of the, of the post-Cold War period, our economic relations were going gangbusters. And now this relationship, shall we say, is in really, really bad shape. It's almost looking for a, a rationale. To what extent is what you're writing about in this novella, did it contribute to that? Or is it really just a separate thing, that the relationship soured? And while it was souring, it just happened to be that uh, you had you know, this growing Chinese espionage uh, of, of, against the United States that was essentially more effective uh, than vice versa. I think it was concurrent, uh, not, not a causative factor. Uh, I had a fascinating conversation yesterday with Admiral Mike Mullen and Sue Gordon, who were the two co-chairs of uh, a task force that you put in, 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 in place uh, when you were head, heading the Council on Foreign Relations on Taiwan, but by implication on the U.S.-China relationship. And, and it was interesting in the conversation with them to chart where we've been and where we are now. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that your task force group was right um, to say that the, the status quo that we have with Taiwan, where um, we have a, an ambiguous policy, we don't specify exactly what we would do if China attacked, has served us well now for decades and is, is the right way to, to, to keep moving forward. And I was, you know, in the area of policy with with your with your uh, your colleagues and your and your task force, in in this intelligence world I, I'm writing about, um, China is the ultimate hard target. I mean, it is a country that is so laced with, with surveillance, uh, fixed surveillance on every street corner, surveillance in every public place, every possible meeting place. It's a very it's a very hard environment to operate in. I think the CIA has depended, um, as in so many other areas, on technical collection of intelligence, uh, signals, overhead reconnaissance, because it's so darn hard to recruit individuals. But that's a challenge going going forward. It's obvious that there are all sorts of, you know, not just secrets, as the CIA likes to say, but mysteries, uh, things that you need to understand that are the intentions of the Chinese leadership, and you can only do that by having real spies. A lot of this book is about the Chinese rolling up of the American agents, basically Chinese people who are working for American intelligence in, in China. Say something, though, about how significant we think Chinese uh, intelligence has been against us. Uh, or actually, two questions. One is, how significant is our loss? Obviously, it's the tragedy of these people being killed and so forth after they're rolled up. What do you think, though, as a result, we have lost by not having this human intelligence? How significant is the absence of that? And secondly, where I began, how significant do you think what the Chinese have gleaned from us, not by rolling up that network, but simply what they've been able to do within the United States? So I, I think the, the most valuable thing for China, as it was growing and expanding and seeking to become a military rival to the United States was the secrets it was, it was able to steal about weapons technology, about technology in general. And the, the Chinese have been incredibly aggressive at that. They, they've used principally cyber espionage. They've been inside every computer system. 
they could they could find, whether it's government or defense contractors or companies that are close to defense contractors. It's it's stunning uh, just how much leaked out in, in aerospace uh, in, in so many of these technology areas. I think we've gotten uh, a little paranoid and worrying that the Chinese are 10 feet tall, as, as intelligence officers used to say about, about the Russians. Uh, it's not China that discovered GPT-4 uh, and these other AI breakthroughs. That came in the United States, and I think there's a reason. Uh, it's hard to imagine that kind of AI freewheeling that digests every piece of information arising in a country where citizens are not allowed to use Google search. How could you, how could you have a generative AI system in a country where you, where you can't search the internet? It's not possible. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think um, China has been successful in, in going after the things it identifies as important that are available um, through the internet. Companies are much more careful, careful now about protecting those secrets. I think it'll be harder, harder for China going forward. In terms of what we need, the, the riddle that we're all puzzling over when we think about Taiwan is what does President Xi want to do? Does he want to attack Taiwan? Does he want to unify Taiwan by force by 2027, uh, as he's instructed the, his army to be ready to do? We need to understand his intentions. And, and that's something you can't steal through cyber espionage. Uh, and it's crucial to our security because our understanding of what he really intends to do will drive so many other decisions. There are instances in history, as you know, uh, as well as I, where, where, where people ended up creating the conditions for wars that weren't necessary because they didn't understand their adversaries. And I think that's the danger with China. That's why we need spies. So we're talking about intelligence and intelligence is about secrets. So let me ask you what may seem like an odd question. To what extent does our obsession with secrets blind us to a larger reality? We, know, we don't need intelligence to tell us about China's demographic, the disaster they're heading towards. We don't need intelligence to tell us how Chinese economic growth is, is slowing down or the failures uh, in the Chinese real estate business or the bubbles in their uh, economy. So to what extent do you think that this preoccupation with secrecy in some ways has the perverse effect of blinding us to what's emerging as the reality of a China, to use your expression, that's anything but 10 feet tall, that actually has far more significant problems than many in the West seem to appreciate? It's a great question. You should be head of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, so the... Um, big thing that's right in front of our nose, maybe so obvious that we don't see it, is that China is is not uh, destined necessarily to be this overwhelming uh, dominant economic superpower. Uh, its population is now less than that of India. It's growing about half as fast as India. Uh, its demographic problems, an aging workforce supported by a smaller and smaller number of, of active workers, is a huge problem. That's just, just, just. You don't need spies to tell you that. It's right there in the numbers. We made the same mistake with with the Soviet Union. We were counting missiles, warheads, endless uh, defense calculations, and we didn't see that 
you know, the Russian male population was dying younger and younger because it was a society that had chronic social problems, chronic alcoholism. You know, it was it was a it was a paper mache economy in some ways, and, and it it took people who said, "Hey, wait a minute, CIA analysts, you know, we're Russian emigres. Let us tell you about this country," to to finally wake people up. So I, I think you make a a, a great point. Um, even so even when you understand these sort of basic fundamental uh, demographic shifts, it's important to know intentions because that's where the miscalculations that leads to lead to wars begin, that you just don't see the world adequately through your adversary's eyes. Uh, David, since you mentioned him, I feel comfortable in mentioning him. Uh, Mr. Yu, who was the deputy head of Chinese intelligence, defected and so forth. I hope I'm not spoiling anything. When his motive was not financial, uh, in the first, as, as I understood what you were saying, he was in some ways truly unhappy with what China had become. Uh, I hope I'm doing justice to your your writing. And I just wanted to raise a larger question, which is: this book is about people who are it's really willing to spy against their own country. That's essentially what American spies, intelligence personnel overseas do. They recruit locals who will provide information. What have we learned about Chinese willing to work with us? What motivates them? And it connects to the question now, Xi Jinping's China is as repressive as any China we've seen in, in what, two generations? So the question is, is this potentially an environment, despite everything you said about how tough it is to operate in China, that could produce more people in China willing to work with us? It certainly is an environment in which in which um, the CIA can um, solicit help. If you go to the CIA's website, you'll see a, a, a place where people around the world in different languages can share information that they think is important with the CIA. It's an open invitation to spy. Uh, CIA Director Burns, in a speech in London uh, last weekend, talked about this being the greatest opportunity to recruit spies in Russia in a, in a generation because of the disaster that Putin has created. And he said, and we're taking advantage of it. Uh, I think the same is, is true with China. There are a lot of Chinese people. You, you, you see this occasionally. One moment was, was, was at the end of, of the, the zero COVID policy where Chinese were just in the streets. They were so angry and unhappy. <clears throat> so you, you see signs of this uh, latent resistance in the system. Whether Chinese will take, take the huge risks in that police state uh, of, of working with the United States uh, is, you know, very few will. Chinese are patriotic. I mean, I'm, I must you know, uh, be honest, when I've traveled in China in recent uh, uh, years, I've been struck by the way Chinese, Chinese people are excited about the new country that, that she and other leaders are creating, the China dream that they're experiencing. You know, they're, 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 they're Chinese patriots. They're proud of their country. But there are a lot of people who feel that they're just not able to express themselves. Look at the, the Chinese internet uh, uh, success stories, Jack Ma, who created Alibaba. Ali they've, they've, been, they've been basically squeezed. They're not allowed to talk. They're not allowed to, to run their companies anymore. They must get angry, and some of them, not the big names probably, but some, some of the younger people might be motivated to say, hey, 
you know, the kind of world I want will be fostered by more open systems like that in America. David, this has been available for a few days already in the in the Washington Post. Have you had any feedback from uh, your buddies, your sources in American intelligence? Uh, complained that you were too rough on them, complimented you that you you got it uh, pretty much right. Uh, what sort of feedback have you had from your from that set of shall we say secret reviewers? So uh, you know uh, the not as much as you might think. People. Um, this notion that, that people in the CIA are always uh, blabbing to journalists, uh, and, and it's just not true. <laughs> they don't. They, you know, if, if too bad. You know, I, I, you know, I, I wish, but it, it, it ain't so. So, um, in terms of people on the inside, uh, not so much. Pe people who, who are outside who are retired um, seem to, from the communications I've gotten, to, to have enjoyed that. They're not saying. Uh, this is right or wrong. They're just saying it was a good yarn uh, and and faithful. What I try to do in my novels, uh, Richard, is um, describe what in intelligence officers actually do, as opposed to what you see in James Bond movies. And I, I think if I have a readership uh, in the intelligence community in the U.S. and maybe around the world, it's because of that. They're they're realistic. Uh, they describe what what people people actually do. I mean, there are no there are no martinis. Uh, Shaken, not stirred, or stirred, not shaken. I never know which in this book because you know I haven't I haven't seen that much of that in in real life with with people like this. More 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 Budweisers than martinis. As long as the martinis are dry, whether they're shaken or stirred is is is, is less. Stephen, uh, when you're asked by young people, I'm curious. When you're asked by them about whether they should think about careers in intelligence, you've written about it so much. What do you what do you tell them? So I usually say that the same thing, that um, it's really important for any country, including ours, especially ours, to have a good intelligence service and smart, capable young people um, you know, who are interested in, in the world um, certainly should think about it. I caution them that there is a hard dividing line between the world of intelligence and and certainly the, the world I inhabit, the world of journalism. So when you make, when you cross that line and become an intelligence officer, you're making what in some ways is a lifetime commitment. Don't, don't think that it's a, a permeable, easily, easily uh, 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 tra transited space. Um, I, I think the, when people are looking at the State Department as a career versus intelligence, it's an interesting question. The State Department is a pretty bureaucratic place sometimes. As as you know, you you were director of policy planning. You you, you know our government uh, uh, from the inside for decades. Um, somebody who's who's more freewheeling than than a than a, a button down State Department officer is probably going to be happier in one of the intelligence agencies. It doesn't have to be the CIA. Um, you know, I, I just to say one more thing. I travel a lot around the world, and I'm struck wherever I go. Um, by just how powerful the United States continues to be. We run down the, this country a lot, um, get frustrated with it. But when you think about hard power, whether it's intelligence or military, you know, take a stop pretty much anywhere on the globe and it just stares you in the face. There's nothing remotely like it uh, from any other country. Uh, so I think that's another reason that young people, I have, a, I have a, a, a nephew just joined the Navy. He's loving it. He, he just, you know, he th this is, he's a young man in his early 20s. He's, this is, he's having the adventure of his life. And so I'm happy for him.
So David, you have this fascinating life where you have one, one David Ignatius who writes his column and, and analyzes and assesses the news. And then you've got this second David uh, Ignatius who writes, who writes fiction, uh, writes about uh, essentially the, the world of espionage of, of, of spies from you know, the Middle East now to, uh, to, to China. Tell us, uh, how do you navigate these two worlds? Uh, what's it like now being you with these two very different callings? So uh, they're in a sense mutually reinforcing. Uh, in my novels, I, I write about things that often I encountered in my journalism and I wanted to understand in more detail. I wanted to, to unpack what I thought about them, not in the 800 words of a column, but over 100,000 words, which is what my, my typical novels are. When I got started, you and I have been friends since the 1970s. Uh, so you, you'll remember this. I got I published my first novel in, in 1987. It was called Agents of Innocence. And people, people liked it. And I thought, okay, David, you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to either be a novelist and focus on that or be a journalist. But, but you, you can't, it's a fork in the road, baby. You got to make a choice. And I didn't, I just couldn't, I, I, I couldn't, I was afraid I'd never make enough money as a novelist to support my then your growing family. So, uh, so, so I continued to do both. And I, and I, now 11 novels later, you know, I, I feel as if, if I'd made that choice, if I, if I hadn't continued with my journalism, or if I hadn't continued writing my novels, I would have made a terrible mistake. But at the, t at the time, it's, it's one of those things that seem like an either or, but it really wasn't. Uh, in, in my case, it got to be a both end. Well, we're fortunate that uh, you came out there. Uh, the only bad news is we're out of time. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. But I want to thank you for uh, giving us this behind-the-scenes look at the Tao of De Deception, your, your, your latest and, I think, compelling and readable and truly uh, enjoyable, not novel, not short story, but novella. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.